Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, love at First, first Listen. listen. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily Podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I know you'll be alright, even when times get hard, and you feel like you're in the dark, you will see. Just how beautiful life can be When you soften your heart You can finally start To live your truthiest life Hey everyone, welcome back to The Truthiest Life. Thanks to everyone who listened to my solo episode last week where I shared just a couple of life lessons that have been going through my mind as I got ready to turn 33. I feel like so many more have kind of come my way even since then. And to any of my younger listeners, I just want to encourage you to travel and see the world, especially now that it's opening back up, and to be spontaneous. I was really spontaneous in my youth, almost to a flaw, not a flaw, but in a naive sense where traveling is serious, you got to do it safely, you need to be prepared, you need to research the places you'll go. But when I think about my most life-changing moments, they were traveling to Costa Rica alone, seeing the world. I did a program called Semester at Sea when I studied abroad. And one night booking a flight to go to Italy the night before and getting on a plane the day after. And all of these experiences, I think, have really shaped my understanding of the world. And you can't play a part in this world unless you see things that are outside of your realm of reality. And so I just wanted to add that in. And of course, older people can, older than me, of course, can travel still. But as I prepare to have this baby, things are different now, right? Like I have a responsibility that's bigger than me about to arrive. And for the first time, I'm not going to be able to do things on a whim. And I have no regrets about the way I lived my early 20s. The only thing I guess I wished I did more was travel and see it a little bit more while I could. So I just wanted to add that in. 
And this episode today is so freaking awesome. If you're unfamiliar with Dr. Kristen Neff, she is the leading expert in self-compassion. I've been reading her work for years, ever since I began working on Fork the Noise that originally had a different name and I had a partner. My partner was obsessed with self-compassion work and she introduced it to me actually. And I immediately saw how it was the missing component to disordered eating and living a free life. That being said, I remember really resisting a lot of what my partner at the time had to say about self-compassion. And really now that I have been practicing it for the last few years, it's not that I disagreed with the things that she said, but rather I didn't understand the depths of self-compassion and the different ways it can be used. Like many of you, you probably think that self-compassion will make you weak. You'll be too easy on yourself. You won't be motivated. You won't accomplish your goals, all those things. And that's not the case at all. And Dr. Neff, like I said, she's the leading expert in self-compassion, and she's not just sitting there talking about self-compassion, but she has been studying it. She's a researcher, she's a scientist, and her goal is to help us learn how to utilize self-compassion to create change, change for ourselves, change in the world, change for our families on every single level. And I really do have to say that it is I've in the past month, I have seen self-compassion work in the most incredible ways for me. And it's not softening so that you just lay on your back and do nothing. It's softening so that you get really clear on how you can show up the most authentically. It's kind of like a really great way to move the ego out of the way, to move the shame out of the way. All that stuff that really blocks us from getting in touch with our true self. And she talks all about the fierceness of self-compassion, which has never been talked about before, I don't believe at least, including anger, which this year you probably have a lot of anger after what we've all been through, either in the world or in your job or in your personal life. I mean, there's so many areas where things have felt so unjust. And if you're a woman listener, you know, anger is an emotion that we have been taught to push down. It doesn't look good on us. We're not allowed to be explosive or reactive. And Dr. Neff really explains, these are just my favorite parts I just wanted to call out, that anger doesn't need to be an emotion that we're not allowed to have. And in fact, it can actually be constructive, meaning we can use anger, an emotion all humans have, including us women, to motivate us, to fuel us, I should say, to reduce harm, as long as we're using it in that specific way right? So anyway, I love this episode. We, of course, get into some of Dr. Neff's personal stories of shame, um, some things that she has done in her past that everybody has stuff in their past, right? We're like, oh, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I hurt somebody. I can't believe I this. I can't believe I did that. But when we start to really use self-compassion and replace that with shame, we can actually do something about the negative or bad things that we've done in the past. And we can make sure that they don't happen again. So I truly believe that self-compassion is so much bigger than everything that most people think it is. I think it's so much more utilizable in everyday situations. And I truly believe it can transform the world. So I hope that you love this episode as much as I do. 
I also just want to mention that we had Dr. Neff on Outway where she helped us explore the relationship between self-compassion and disordered eating and eating disorders, super relevant to maybe some of you. And I'm going to link that episode below if you want to check it out. It's already live. Both fantastic episodes that I think you're going to love. Let's dive in. And thanks again for all the lovely birthday wishes. Wishing you all a great week ahead. Welcome back to The Truthiest Life. Welcome, Dr. Neff. I'm so excited to have you. Oh, thank you, Lisa. I'm really happy to be here. So I think that most people are familiar with you, but in case they're not, uh, if you've ever heard the word self-compassion, you are probably familiar with Dr. Neff's work. So Dr. Neff is a scientist and she really pioneered the research into self-compassion and developed an eight-week program called the Mindful Self-Compassion Program that I don't know how many people have taken that by now. Yeah, well, hundreds of thousands probably at this point around the world, yeah. You know, what's amazing about having Dr. Neff here is you really look at the research, the studies, and you're not just throwing around this word loosely. You've defined it, you've quantified it, which best of all helps us really utilize it. So thank you. Yeah, well, thank you. I'm interested in the theory and the research, but ultimately it's about helping people, right? It's a practice. It's not just a good idea. So that's that's my bottom line is, can I use this in a way that actually people can use to help themselves? And self-compassion, I think, is the most useful tool right next to mindfulness. You know, those are two things I pair together all the time. Yeah, they go hand in hand. Yeah, for sure. I will say that it's the most misunderstood word, way more than mindfulness, even personally, somebody that really resonates with your work. I resisted a lot of what you had to say the first time I heard it. Do you find that that happens with people? Very, very common because people usually resist it because they think it's squishy. They think it's soft. They think it's self-indulgent. They think it's complacent, all those kind of negative things, which of course it's not. And so in some ways, when you hear the word fierce self-compassion, it's like, oh, it's not what I thought it was. So hopefully it'll prick up people's ears a little bit. Definitely. And we're going to get into your amazing new book, Fierce Self-Compassion. I'm holding it here. It's got a bright red title. And I think it really is going to open the eyes of so many people that think of self-compassion as being weak and something they can't do. Because I love that the cover of this book is red because self-compassion gives you such clarity and insight into your emotions, even if they're intense emotions. (laughs) Anger right in there. Right in there, which I I hope to get to all of that. So let's just start with a little bit of your personal story on discovering self-compassion. Yeah. Well, so for me, it really is a personal practice. It's still primarily a personal practice, right? So I, I might say I'm the messenger, but the message was there long before me. I'd actually learned about self-compassion my last year of graduate school at University of California at Berkeley. And basically I was a basket case, right? I had just gotten through a divorce and it was like a really messy divorce. And I was feeling shame and self-doubt. And I was also under a lot of stress, you know, getting my PhD, where I get a job, no guarantees, very tough job market. And so I learned mindfulness meditation to deal with my stress. So again, mindfulness is really at the heart of self-compassion. And the very first night I went to the mindfulness course, the woman leading the course, who's teaching in the tradition of Thich Nhat Hanh a Zen master who talks a lot about self-compassion. You know, she talked about, yes, okay, it's important to cultivate compassion, but it's really important that you show compassion to yourself, that you're, you know, warm, kind, supportive to yourself. And it's like, 
that had never really even crossed my mind before. Like what? I can like actively be warm and kind and supportive to myself. And, you know, again, I never really thought about it. So I started trying it out and I was just blown away by the immediate difference it made in my ability to cope. It's not like something you've got to do for 10 years and slowly you start seeing the good effects. The moment if you're feeling emotional pain, that you hold that pain with warmth, with kindness, with support, you say to yourself something like, this is really hard. I'm here for you. I got your back. Makes an immediate difference in your ability to cope with it. On page eight, so right out the door of this book, you talk about that divorce and you leaving your first husband for another man specifically. My mother's still like, do you really want to write about that, sweetheart? Because yeah, there's a lot of shame there, especially because my core value is honesty, always Mm. has been. If you had told me that that would happen to me, I would have said, no way, I would never do that. And so, but going through that process of what happens when you aren't thinking logically and you get taken over by, there was a re, in my first book, I unpacked more why I think it happened and all that. And I, you know, I learned to have compassion for myself, but yeah. So, so I, I was feeling horribly about myself. I assumed that the best way to do penance for what I felt so guilty about was to beat myself up that somehow that make me a better person. And so when I was able to have compassion toward all that. First of all, what I noticed is it it didn't make me blow off responsibility. It actually helped me fully assume responsibility. It helped me hold the pain, what I had done in a way that wouldn't have been possible if I hadn't learned my self-compassion practice. And it also made me really, really committed the going forward, this will never happen again, right? That, okay, so I see what I see what happens when you kind of take your eye off the ball, so to speak, and you let yourself get carried away. This is the fierce self-compassion, the tender self-compassion, which is more about the accepting side of self-compassion. I was able to accept myself. I made a mistake. I would have done it differently if I could have, but at the time, that's just what happened. That's all I was capable of. And so by holding myself tenderly, I was able to open to the pain of it, acknowledge it, own it, and then make a really fierce, strong commitment to whatever happens in the future, this won't happen again. And that's really the way it works. The more we accept ourselves, the more we can change, as as Carl Rogers famously said. I love how you just described during that really difficult time in your life, trying to be self-compassionate to yourself and what the voices in your head said. In the book, you said, you know, you started to hear one voice that said, it's okay, humans make mistakes. And then another voice would pop in and say, you're just making excuses, you know, and it's so true. Everyone does that, right? We have all these voices. And the thing is about, and I talk about this in the book as well, that self-critical voice, the one that shames us, or you're making excuses, you're being lazy. We have to understand that actually its intent is a good one. Like the reason that voice is there is to try to protect us, right? Because that voice doesn't want us to make excuses because we know if we make excuses, we'll harm ourselves or others, right? Doesn't want us to be lazy because we know if we do that, we'll harm ourselves, you know? So once you really start understanding that the voice of the self-critic is there to try to keep you safe, then you can start relating to the self-critic with compassion. Thank you so much for trying to keep me safe. I hear you. I get it. Lesson learned, point taken. But then you can start to keep yourself safe with a more effective way, which is through encouragement as opposed to shame. Shame is not exactly a great get up and go mind state. We know this. Shame is not very helpful. But the reason it's there is to try to keep us safe. So we can harness that desire, that kindness to try to keep ourselves safe and use it in a more productive way, which is really what self-compassion is all about. 
Right. And I just love how I've, again, I resisted what this type of thing in the beginning, I I could apply self-compassion to moments where it was easy to forgive myself for little things, but some of the darker parts of things that I've, you know, didn't want to go for, I'd say, no, I need discipline for this. I need to be hard on myself. That's how it works. Mm -hmm. And it has taken years of diving deeper into mindfulness and self-compassion to really see your point, which is it's always about holding the shame with love and then really getting to the underbelly of that emotion and that feeling and dealing with it in, like you said, a really fierce way that changes the trajectory of your life forever. That's right. And and so sometimes you can be hard on yourself, not in the sense of, you know, calling yourself names or shaming yourself, but in the sense of having really high standards. You know, I believe in you. You can do it. You need to do better. You can say that to yourself. I, or it's not that you need to do better. You don't need to do better because I will accept you even if you don't, but I would want you to do better because I want you to be happy. I want you to be authentic. I want you to be true to your values. And it, so I call it this fierce mama bear energy. Parenting is such a good analogy. We love our children unconditionally, even when they fail or mess up or make mistakes. But sometimes we need to have pretty clear boundaries with them and say, this is okay and this isn't okay. If we care about them, we want them to develop to their full potential. It's not compassionate for a parent just to say, okay, little Johnny, you know, whatever, don't go to school, you know, the bonbons you want or whatever stereotypical indulgent mother would be like, that's not compassionate, right? So sometimes we can have high, we can have high standards for ourselves. We can, you know, really try to say, hey, I think, I believe in you. I think you can do better, but I love you even if you can't, you know what I mean? It's just very much like a parent. And it's that bottom line of safety that knowing my worth isn't contingent on doing better, that I would like to because it would make me happy. Then you've got the safety to take risks and to risk failure. And if you do fail to learn from the failure and try again. And I think there's this word that you used when you were forgiving yourself for your, I wouldn't call I'd call them wrongdoings, but the things that you were holding shame for. Yeah. But countering that voice that said, you're just making a excuses comes that other voice back that says, I know you would have done it differently if you could have, but you weren't capable at the time. That's right. And the capability factor, I think, is huge. Are you capable to do more? Then I want you to do more. But if you're not capable to do more, then do there's best. Yeah. do your best that you can. Yeah. And that voice of encouragement is a much more effective motivator, but it doesn't mean complacency. And that and that's where people get confused because it is it is both fierce and tender. It's mama bear and gentle mother both simultaneously. Uh, and and they and it's like it's like yin and yang, you know, that symbol that's in some ways they can't even be separated. They go together, yin and yang. Yin is more the tender, the yang is more the fierce. It's funny hearing you say the word complacency because similar to in my world nutrition, I feel like there's so many things that we have been told that if we don't do we will become. So if we're not working hard on our fitness and our food, we will become lazy, right? That was the assumption we were fed. Uh, When it comes to work, if we're not working really hard and killing ourselves, then we will be viewed as lazy or complacent was the word that you used. But we're not complacent naturally. There are times when maybe that's what we need. Self-compassion is really the question, what do I need that's going to be most helpful to me in the moment? There actually may be some times where maybe laziness is exactly what we need. For we sure. need to take some rest. You know, I have a 
good friend who's been working so hard. It's like, I told you, you just need to just chill out and not do anything. Sometimes that is what we need, right? But if you do that for too much and if it starts harming you, then you don't need it anymore. Then you need to do something different. It's really, it's not rocket science. It's kind of common sense. What's, what's healthy for me in the moment? And there's no one answer to that. Sometimes you need to go left. Sometimes you need to go right, you know, to, to have that center, to have that balance. I guess I wouldn't call needing rest complacency. I would call that fierce love for yourself, you know? Well, exactly. It is. It really is. Yeah. It is kind of a, it's not an oxymoron, but it's paradoxical. So let's say you are being complacent. It's by accepting yourself in the midst of your complacency that you're able to change the behavior so you actually start doing something. There's a difference between yourself, like your essence. Am I worthy? Can I love myself even if I'm doing something that's not healthy? Yes. And when I do that, that actually gives me more ability to change the unhealthy behaviors. When I shame myself for doing something that's unhealthy, it's going to make it harder for me to change those behaviors. And also accepting our limitations, right? You know, yes, we do our best, but our best for some people, maybe it's not nearly as, as what they would like but it's their best and that's good enough. You know what I mean? What self-compassion does is it frees us from our happiness or a sense of self-worth being contingent on outcomes. Mm. It's unconditional. And when we give ourselves that, we actually do a lot. We can do a lot better than we even think we can. <laughs> right. So listeners, you know, it's, it's our job to notice when we're being hard on ourselves and let's say, insert self-compassion, recognizing that the hard on ourselves isn't going to take us where we want to go. That's right. It may be pointing out, maybe that critical voice is pointing out something useful. So you can mm-hmm. listen to that, mm. but then change it to the voice of criticism. I mean, if you think about what the, what the good friend you cared about, we know what's more effective. If you say, that was such a stupid, dumb thing you did. I can't believe that. Is that really going to motivate your friend to make a change? Or you say, hey, I love you. Everyone does it. But, you know, actually, if you had done this, it may have been a little more effective. We know that's going to be a more effective way to motivate our friend to make a change. It's exactly the same with ourselves. Actually, I think that the common idea is, you know, self-compassion begins or is easier if you start with others and then move inward. Is that what you have found? Yeah, it is. And I think there I think there are actually some evolutionary reasons for this, right? So we've got two two main safety systems. There's the threat defense system, the fight, flight, or freeze system, which happens when we're personally threatened. And so if I fail, I feel personally threatened. So I either fight the problem, which is myself, thinking it'll force me to change and be safe, or I flee in shame from the perceived judgments of others. And that makes me feel safe because I've withdrawn, or I freeze and, you know, freeze and ruminate thinking that will help me be safe. Now, if my best friend fails, I don't feel personally threatened. So I don't go into fight, flight, or freeze mode. I can go into the care mode. So the care system helped us learn to be safe through affiliation, through bonding, through care, you know, with, with parents and children, actually through physical touch. And so that comes more naturally with other people. I think that's just a simple evolutionary reason for that. So when we, we can use that system toward ourselves, but it doesn't come totally naturally. We have to do a little perspective taking. We have to do a little U-turn. So we have to use some intention. It can become habit over time, but it's not instinctual the way self-criticism is, which is why it is a practice. 
I find that when I teach this stuff, people are generally better able to understand, treat yourself as you would somebody else. And then they have those, that aha moment. Yes, exactly. But I've also found in my own work, and maybe it's because I've been doing it a tad bit longer than the people that I work with, is that when I'm more self-compassionate to myself, I'm also more compassionate to any human being strangers, etc. The research does support that. I mean, most people are much more compassionate to others than themselves. But if you train in self-compassion, for instance, it increases. Here's the thing. Not only does it increase your compassion for others, it increases your ability to sustain compassion for others. In other words, it reduces the burnout that comes from caring for others, which is so important. If we don't resource ourselves, we're going to burn out when we care for others. In the past year alone, when I feel like, you know, we all became others to each other, whether it was, you know, seeing somebody at the grocery store and not wanting to go near them because you're afraid of coronavirus or the, the social injustices or the political stuff, you know, it was just such a polarizing year of seeing. It was so hard. Yeah. Other people as other I found that my self-compassion work, not that it always was easy to stay present to opposing views, it helped me to remember that everybody's a human being, which I think then reminded me that I'm a human being and I have flaws, not just they're perfect and I'm perfect. It's they have flaws. Oh yeah, but you have flaws too. So we should just listen to each other and see what comes out in it. I don't, I don't know if you've had any experiences like that. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I was, you know, I was writing this book through the pandemic and through the Trump years and all that and, and all, all the social justice movements. Well, I also write a lot of, in this book about anger. And so absolutely it's important that we don't dehumanize anyone that we don't see anyone as unworthy of compassion or respect, but there is a place for anger, right? If you weren't angry after seeing the George Floyd video, you're asleep, right? How could you not be enraged? You should be enraged, but what do you do with that anger? Do you use it, do you harness that anger to do good in the world? Or do you use it in a way that just kind of causes more harm? You know, and so that that's the whole thing. Anger in the service of alleviating suffering is actually a form of compassion and self-compassion, because when we make our society more just, we actually benefit. It helps us as well, as well as other people. And so we, I don't think we should be afraid of anger. There's a lot of power in it. It gives us focus. It makes us, helps us be brave. Um, there's, there's very useful things to anger. Anger can be destructive if it becomes personal or if it consumes you, you know, but if anger, which is just helping to empower you to take a stand and march in the streets like people did, or to, you know, go voting drives or whatever it is, that can actually be really harnessed for good. And, and that's, I think it's so especially important for women because women are so socialized not to be angry. We're told we're ugly when we're angry. We're crazy when we're angry. It feels like we don't acknowledge it as part of our nature because we've been taught it's not. And then it like, takes us over like this alien force. And the more we can realize that anger has a really important place in self-compassion practice, balance, yes, all those caveats, yes, they go there. But we have to also honor our anger as a, a means of trying to establish justice and protecting ourselves and others. Uh, then it's just very important that we open to that fierce side of self-compassion as well. 
In the book, you talk so much about anger, and it's obviously so timely. Like you said, you think about a woman can't raise her voice or, you know, get get ugly or loud. And, you know, there's so many of these these things that women are taught to suppress. Yes. Natural feelings that women are taught to suppress that I also think that it probably turned a lot of women away from looking at the hard stuff of the past couple of years to turn a blind eye if they could, especially, you know, you acknowledge being white and straight and all the privilege that you have that I share. It's very easy for us to turn away and not look towards something that would bring up anger because anger is a bad thing. I can't, I don't want to be angry, so I'm just not going to look. But by you really breaking down anger in this book, giving us permission to do so and Obviously, it extends beyond the context of this conversation. You can be angry in any context of life allows us to really understand it. Like we don't experience any emotion for no reason. Exactly. And anger is a protector. It's a protective emotion. And self-protection is part of self-compassion. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I used to have so many men How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...with zero qualifications... She had a Harvard plaque. ...tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. ...that this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. About six million. Approximately eleven million dollars. Nearly ten million dollars was all gone. Employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich man, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, season five, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. 
Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So just to go into anger a little bit further, you say that anger can be constructive versus destructive. So you're not here just, you know, this isn't the book that says, get loud, get angry, get mad, start a fire, burn the house down. You know, (laughs) there's there's more to it. And I want to make sure everybody hears that. So what is the difference between constructive versus destructive anger? Destructive anger causes harm. It's usually personalized. Sometimes it's ego defensive or it attacks other people personally. Um, It's usually out of control, right? It kind of dehumanizes others. Constructive anger reduces suffering. Constructive anger is aimed at preventing harm. It's not personal. It actually helps situations. Um, it's not It's not so reactive. Right? There's more clarity in it. Uh, constructive anger really focuses us clearly. Sometimes destructive anger is just all over the place. So there's actually, there's a fair amount of research on the difference between constructive and destructive anger. And it's really common sense. You know, the, the easiest distinct thing that distinguishes it is, is, is it causing harm or reducing harm? Anger can be used to reduce harm. I know when people think anger is intrinsically bad, it's actually not. Again, there's a very good reason it's there. And if we suppress it, that harms us. It can lead to things like depression, internalized anger, or we bottle it up and then we explode. And that's not healthy either. So, and by the way, I, I, I've tried to make this really clear in the book. I'm not an anger expert. In fact, I struggle with anger. So I'm coming at this from someone who gets it wrong all the time. And so what I figured out through the research and kind of when, when I do get it right, what happens, the nice thing about being a self-compassion teacher is you get it wrong. I'm really good at apologizing and saying, I'm so sorry, I was out of line. Please forgive me. You know, that's, that's part of it. We aren't going to get it right all the time. But for me, a big revelation, I used to have, so by nature, I'm, I tend to be kind of have an issue with reactive anger. It comes up for me really easily. I'm actually more fierce than tender by nature. And I always have some shame around that. I and mean, here I am, a mindfulness and compassion teacher who struggles with reactive anger, you know, talk about imposter phenomena. And it wasn't until I really started diving deep into fierce self-compassion that I realized this is something that I need to celebrate, not be ashamed of. This is something that has allowed me to raise my autistic son, has allowed me to you know, make it in academia, be fierce when I need to, has given me the drive and focus to achieve a lot of the things I've achieved in life. This is a power source. And yes, we want to make sure we don't harm anyone with it. We do everything we can to make sure that's the case, but it's nothing to be ashamed of. Mama bear is a gift that we need to celebrate, not denigrate. I think that most people have probably only experienced the destructive anger. I'll call it the red zone where you're popping off. You're saying things, you're doing things, you regret it, you know, and you don't want to go back to visit that. But I guess maybe that's where the mindfulness maybe comes in because over the years I've seen that when I am anger, you use the word drive. I have the drive to change what is upsetting me. You do. That's exa- and that's that's its function evolutionarily. It actually gives you energy. It gives you mm. power. It gives you um, suppresses the fear response. It gives you focus. So again, going to the polls you know, fighting for, you know, political stuff, you you need some anger to power you. Otherwise you can just kind of be complacent. 
but I'm not reckless. And I think right. that's, that's the goal. when I'm constructive. So I don't know. I mean, I feel like politics, even just people listening might be in the red zone right now listening. So to take it back to, you know, a calmer <laughs> thing, like just my husband, you know, when I fight with my husband and I get really angry, destructive is when I say something like, you and your family always do this, you know, like if I bring Uh in something that I know will charge him, but constructive is this really upset me when you did this, because you said, you know, keeping it isolated, drawing boundaries. Yeah. And focus on the behaviors, not people, not making it personal is huge. Thank you for giving me permission to identify anger in my body and recognize, is it steering me or am I steering it? Right, right, yeah. And and it is tricky. So I'm, again, I'm not saying this is someone who's mastered it. <laughs> Some people are naturally better than I am at it. So I still struggle with it. It's important that we don't denigrate or shame ourselves for our anger and to recognize how it's really trying to protect us. And it is a face of love. We just need to work with it. We need to harness it as opposed to try to suppress it or shame ourselves for it. Um, And it it is tricky for sure. I'm not going to lie about that, but it can be done. And and it's a continual process. It's not like we achieve, we got it, got our anger sorted out. We're mindful, we're compassionate, and then we're done. It's more Mm. like a continual process. And we we fall off and we get back up again. And it's, it's a way of approaching life. But anger is, is as a part of life. There's a reason it's there. You know, if someone were, I don't know if you have children, but for people who have children, it's, or, or maybe an animal you love or something like that, there was actually a great video that was circulating of a, a young woman and actually a bear attacked her dog. And she was so angry, she actually literally pushed the bear off her dog and got the dog to safety. That's like, don't you dare harm someone I love. You know, and that's that's the power of anger, really. This anger is arising, that kind of no energy can be very useful. And it, it can be a force of love when we use it to protect ourselves or people, those we love. No children yet, just one in one in the belly right now. I'm seven oh, months lovely. pregnant. <laughs> okay, so you'll, yeah. So, you know, and that's natural. But I was going to ask you, you know, anger is something that I have been avoiding in pregnancy because Uh of my fear for how it feels for me and the baby. I'm going to therapy and I'm making sure that I have an outlet for all of it because Uh even just a month or so of trying to bottle it didn't work out very well. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think you brought up a really good point is this is the easiest time in my life to draw boundaries, to say no to whatever it is that I know that I can't do right Right. now. And it's because of that fierce woman energy that is on the rise for me right now. And by the way, fierceness isn't always angry. I'm just saying anger needs to have a place in it. But often it's just like real clarity. I'm sorry, I'd love to help you, but I can't. No Mm -hmm. anger there. It's just very clear. Because angry anger is such a tricky emotion, if you can find other ways to be clearer and draw your boundaries, it's probably easier to deal with. It's just, I think it's important that we have a place for anger because I really do think the socialization against women's anger in particular, like look at Brett Kavanaugh, he was angry and it got him elected to the Supreme Court. There's no way a woman could do that. Part of that is part of patriarchy and women's anger was suppressed so that she wouldn't complain about her position in society. We have to recognize the larger context in which the socialization against especially women's anger occurred. 
Right. It's so much to unpack when we think about it like that. And I think it it brings a lot of people frustration. Yeah. And, you know, it's 2021 and we're still seeing even women politicians unable to use anger or anything in the same way. Yeah. Like Elizabeth Warren and Amy Klobuchar, they had to to apologize for their fierceness. Please don't hate me. I'm fierce, but I need to be fierce to be president. But people don't like fierce women. I wonder if they didn't disclaim that, how it would be perceived. I, I think it was wise that they did because the research shows there is backlash against women who are really competent and fierce. But you need to be competent and fierce to make it in the business world. So so what the research shows is the most effective thing we can do is to combine both, to simultaneously be fierce, but also tender. Now, it kind of sucks that men don't have to do that. They don't have to worry about this, but it's not fair. But nonetheless, that's where we are. So we don't have to suppress our fear side, but we just need to balance it. So if you say something really strong, you know, and say, oh, by the way, how's your family? So combining the two actually helps people because what happens is when a woman's really fierce, people assume she doesn't have that tender nurturing side and people really value that in a woman. So if you make an explicit display of that more tender nurturing side, they accept the fierceness because they don't assume that it means that's absent. So a woman named Joan Hastings has a great term for it. Um, She calls it gender judo. But, you know, again, men don't have to do it, which is unfair. But nonetheless, that's where we are. But at least it is an option for us, because obviously we don't want people just to hate us either, because that's not going to help us. Right. This fierceness that women have. Is this the same as the caring force that you call the superpower in the book? Yes. Yes. So basically what I'm pointing toward is um, an in an integration or a balance between yin and yang, between fierceness and tenderness. So we need both energies. Both energies are critical to life, just like yin and yang. They're both necessary. And unfortunately, gender role socialization stands in the way of balance. And this, by the way, this harms men as much as women. Hmm. Well, it also empowers men get the goodies and the resources. So in some ways, it's not totally equal. But men are truly harmed by the fact that they aren't allowed to be tender, right? They're called names if they're too sensitive growing up. That harms men because the ability to hold our emotions with kindness and to soothe ourselves, for instance, it's a hugely powerful force for emotional well-being. And when you cut men off from that ability to do that, to help heal themselves through tender self-compassion, that harms them. And it harms women because they're allowed to be tender, but not fierce, right? Everyone needs both and to have the balance between both. I was surprised because in your book, you mentioned the research that looks at the difference in the ability to be self-compassionate between genders. Yes, And everyone listening, take a moment. Who do you think is able to be more self-compassionate, men or women? And what's the answer, Dr. Neff? It's not so much that men are really self-compassionate, it's that women are less self-compassionate. It's a small difference, but it's consistent. We found this multiple, multiple times. And yet at the same time, 85% of the people, any audience I talk to in a workshop are women. So compassion is part of the female gender role, but compassion toward others right? Mm. So the difference between how women treat themselves and others, they're much more compassionate to others than men are. And they're, they're less compassionate to themselves than men are. And that's because they feel less entitled to meet their own needs. Really, a lot of what compassion, self-compassion is about is saying that my needs deserve compassion and care and attention too. And women are so socialized to be self-sacrificing. They're actually valued for being self-sacrificing. 
that for a woman, it can feel selfish to be self-compassionate and they don't feel entitled to meet their own needs. They're supposed to be giving to others and that harms their self-compassion level. Now, interestingly, women who are what's called androgynous, which doesn't mean like you look like David Bowie. It means like, you know, you have both fierceness and tenderness. You can be both agentic and communal. They don't have less self-compassion. We're really, especially for self-compassion, what drives this is the, the, the belief that your needs are worthy of being met. And women aren't taught that, you know, and that holds women back. Are they taught that if everyone else's needs are met, then theirs can be met or not at all? Well, you know, what, what, you're a woman. You can talk, you know, what was your, the, your messages? Every, every, every message gets slightly different, but nonetheless, men aren't valued for being self-sacrificing. There's individual differences, of course, mm-hmm. but as a whole, it's part of the female gender role to be self-sacrificing be always thinking of others, to be nurturing, that harms women's ability to be self-compassionate. At the same time, because women know compassion, we're raised to be compassion experts. We have the template right at our hand. And that's why women are more willing to come to workshops and turn it inward because they're more, they, they understand the power of compassion to help. Uh, whereas men, unfortunately, tend to think it's weak, partly because it's a female thing and women are weaker than men. You know, it's terrible, but part of this plays into it. And also a lot of the misconceptions about self-compassion that'll make you soft. So you mentioned the word selfish, and I think that's kind of a good place to go with this conversation. A lot of people think that being self-compassionate is selfish, especially women that believe that it's their job to care for others, which it might be their job to care for others. But what is the difference between being selfish and self-compassionate or why is self-compassion not selfish? Yeah. So so it's almost like the assumption is we have five units of compassion. And if I give three to myself, I'm only going to have two left over as if it's like a zero sum. It actually doesn't work that way. What we know is the more compassion you give yourself, the more resources you have available to give others. It's not actually limited quality, it's it's additive. The more it flows inward, the more it can flow outward. So for instance, all this research showing that, you know, people who are more self-compassionate get less burned out in their job as caregivers, right? We've done training with healthcare workers, for instance. One of the big benefits is it reduces burnout from all that constant giving to others. Mm. So it's just a misperception based on the illusion that compassion is is actually limited. If you take time for yourself and especially give yourself emotionally what you need, that will give you the ability to take care of others. I love that you said emotionally, because I think in the social media world of the last five years or so, the word self-care is really big. And there's nothing wrong with the things I'm about to mention, such as manicures and massages i'm all i'm all for it don't you know don't get me wrong yeah yeah but you said emotional self-care essentially yeah so again so self-care is is good self-compassion people engage in more self-care but self-care is limited we don't have we only have so much time you know we only have so much money it's 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 useful but not only is it limited here's the limitation with self-care especially for caregivers when you're caring for your child who's having a tantrum or you're um, a nurse and you're caring for a patient, you actually can't do self-care in the moment when you're caring for others, right? It's like, it happens off the job, not on the job. So although it's helpful and important, it's not enough. We need the emotional self-care, which is saying, this is really hard right now. How can I be kind to myself? How can I support myself emotionally? You know, or how can I encourage myself in this moment? And that can be done on the job. So for instance, we developed a training program for healthcare professionals, no homework, 
no time out. Everything could be practiced on the job while they were tending to their patients. Uh, and it was very effective in reducing burnout and stress, et cetera. Right. So this emotional self-care, which is essentially utilizing self-compassion in the moment, is how to help you in the moment when you're on the job, when you're taking yes. care of your kids. Yes. When So you don't have to sacrifice also the things that you're maybe afraid to leave behind, which is your love of taking care of people, which some people have. Right. Oh, no, not, not at all. I mean, it's noble to, to take care of people. There's nothing wrong with taking care of people. So you just want to do it because it's an expression of your authentic self, not because you feel you have to, so people will like you mm. or not in a way that people are taking advantage of you. And that's the big thing about self-compassion. The research really supports this is it helps authenticity. You know, if you are self-compassionate, in some ways, the definition of self-compassion is being authentic, you know, doing what's true for you. That is an act of compassion. And if you're doing something that's not true for you, you are not being self-compassionate. Mm, you beat me to my question, because when I saw that you're talking about the research and authenticity and this podcast, that's what, you know, our listeners are trying to do, be more themselves. Yeah. Here, here you are showing us that self-compassion allows us to see when we're being pushed too far or our own weaknesses yeah. and realign, ask ourselves the questions. Why am I doing this? Right. Yeah. And what, what would truly make me happy? What would be, what would be the best for me? What do I need? And, and here's the other reason it's so importantly linked to authenticity um, and especially women, but all people, our self-worth is often contingent on social approval. Right. We want other people to like us. So we say yes, even when we really don't want to, because we want people to like us. Or maybe we act a way that we think will help people approve of us. Self-compassion allows you to approve of yourself. The more self-compassionate you are, the more you realize your own intrinsic self-worth. You become, it's actually research that shows, we did one study where women with body image concerns just listened to the self-compassion meditation, meditations on my website for three weeks. Their sense of self-worth became less contingent on their perceived attractiveness over the course of three weeks. It's real freedom. When you are not so dependent on other people liking you for you to feel worthy, that's freedom. You can be your true self. And you know, other people may not like it as much. They may actually really prefer it if you say yes. Oh, well, sorry. You know what I mean? You can say that. Not, not that you want to be rude about it, but your happiness and your sense of self-worth isn't contingent on other people liking you. And if they want you to be some other way, well, that's their problem, not yours, you know? In your book, you give a great example of that um, when you talk about a time where your self-esteem was a little low because I think you had some, like, um, you got a little surgery on your nose. Oh, I had, yeah, I had a little melanoma on my nose and I had to get it cut out. <laughs> I remember big talk. <laughs> I mean, I, it was really, it was really hilarious. And I couldn't like not mention it. <laughs> you had to go give a talk after you had the surgery? Yes, I had this big bandage right in the middle of my nose. I, and I have to, personally, I have to say that's one of the things I've really noticed. It's been 25 years practice. If I, anything, I'm really authentic. That's why I can share some of my really personal stories in my book. My mother's like, are you really want to sure you want to write that? But it's okay. I can be authentic. I can be flawed. I can admit my mistakes and my you know weaknesses. If I'm anything, I'm authentic. Or if I'm not anything, I'm not inauthentic. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah. Authenticity is something that I can do. And I attribute that directly to my self-compassion practice. And I think that a lot of people could have any sort of body, perceived body flaw, whether it's, you know, something that's going to go away or the shape of their body or the size of their body that day. And they can't leave the house that day because 
they don't like how they look. And for you, it was like self-compassion carried you out of that state of a little bit of maybe insecurity, you know, turned it into something humorous for you, you know, in that moment. I just love that example because without self-compassion, you would have been stuck and limited. Yeah, right. Yeah, and it is, it provides freedom. When your sense of self-worth is not dependent on other people's approval, that's freedom. Everything in this book is so amazing from anger to, you know, how our fierce women energy can really come in beneficially. And it doesn't have to be something that we suppress. It's something that we can use and utilize. And just the step-by-step process of how to do it, I think is just fantastic. Yeah, there's a lot of practices. It's not just an idea. They're concrete practices and tools you can use. I love the tools. They're, they're amazing. And I'm only halfway through it. So I've got a lot more to go, but I just got it in my hands and I Uh I ate it up over the weekend. For our listeners who want to understand how they can begin, what is step one of being more self-compassionate, whether that's the tender side or the fierce side, where would you start off a beginner? Usually what I find the easiest access for beginners is to simply have them, I often open my workshops this way, is to think of sometimes you've had a good friend come to you who is upset about something or struggling. And this could, maybe they had something like they wanted to stand up to their boss and they were too afraid to, or maybe they made a mistake and were feeling shame or whatever it was. And you think about what are the things you say to your friends in those situations? What tone of voice do you use quite naturally? And then you think of very similar situations that have happened to yourself. Have you related to yourself? Have you treated yourself? What's the difference? For most people, the difference is quite stark. And then you, you know, what do you think if you, what would happen if you treated your friend the way you treated yourself? Like, oh, that wouldn't be good. But it's also a template. See, that's the thing. People aren't novices to compassion, especially women. By the time you get to a certain age, we've learned how to do it. You know, some better than others, but we know how to be kind, how to be supportive, how to be warm, how to be understanding, how to be encouraging, how to kick someone in the butt just a little bit if they need a little kick in the butt, if we care about them, you know. And so we have the template. And again, all we need to do is really give ourselves permission to do it with ourselves. So that's a good place to start, but also really easy things. Like if you go to my website, Google self-compassion, you'll find me. Um, I've got a lot of practices and information and videos all free, you know, so it's it's an easy place to start. You can also take the self-compassion test I developed to find out, are you high or low? Maybe if you're already really high in self-compassion, maybe you don't need my book, you know, maybe you can focus on something else. So it'll give you a sense of where you are. Well, either way, I think it's a great tool. I took, I took the little exam in the book and I love to see kind of where I fell because I also know that it's not where I would have fallen should I not have been doing your, your work over the last couple of years. So I think either way, it's an introspective tool to see where you are. Yeah. So for people that are out the door, I'm going to put Dr. Neff's information below where you can get some of those free resources for some of you that really resonate with the fierce aspect of, yes, that's me. I'm a fierce woman. I'm afraid to get soft. I don't know where that, how could I be soft with myself when I'm such a strong woman? Or alternatively, I'm so tender, I'm afraid to be fierce. 
Oh, okay. That's all the books for every, everyone. I agree. I definitely agree with that. So I'm going to link the book below as well. If you've got kids too, I think it's a great one to have in the house for anyone to just pick up and read a chapter and be like, okay, this is giving me permission to feel something that I haven't been pr given permission for in a while. <laughs> so thank you for writing it in such a time that we needed it. And thank you for your time today. So grateful for your work over the last 20 years and for really paving the way for all of us. Thank you. Appreciate that. It's been a lot of fun. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes... Nearly $10 million was all gone. It's just unbelievable. Hide your money in your old rich men, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right.